Well, this morning we are continuing uh, in our sermon series entitled Bedrock. It's an exploration of our church's core values. These are things we're passionate about, things that govern and guide our lives together as a church. These are things that get us up in the morning. And over the next several weeks, we're looking at five core commitments. Jesus, leadership, bolder and beyond, multi-generational community, youth, and prayer. And uh, we are excited about these things, and we're unpacking them. Now, bedrock, bedrock is the language of foundations, of that sturdy substructure upon which we build our lives. And it reminds me of our current commitment to rebuilding our home that was destroyed in the Marshall Fire. Rupali and I, along with several of our neighbors, are going to rebuild on our property our our new home. And it will be different from our old home. So the ground has been cleared, the foundation has been removed, except for the caissons. A lot of you may know what caissons are, but for those who don't, caissons are these reinforced pillars that go deep down into the substructure of the earth, deep down to the bedrock. And caissons cannot be removed easily. You can cut them, but uh, they need to be re-poured and redone when you build the foundation. Caissons anchor our homes to bedrock. And caissons are what we're looking at in this sermon series. And our bedrock, of course, is Jesus. Well, to focus us today, our main Bible text this morning is all about bedrock. Bedrock for Matthew and the early church. Bedrock for us in this church. Let me set the context. In chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel, it's a key turning point. Jesus is taking away his disciples on retreat, and he's taking them to the far north of Israel, and he's training them for ministry. And he's doing it in a most interesting place, which is pagan Gentile country in the far north of Israel. The place was loaded with all kinds of shrines to pagan gods. First of all, let me show you a map. You see that little red balloon at the top and the center? That's Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is taking his disciples. Caesarea Philippi, by the way, was built by Herod Philip, who was tetrarch or ruler of that section of the country. And he built it in honor of Caesar. That's why it's called Caesar Philippi. And he built it in honor of himself. That's why it's called Philippi. So here, he is, here he's built this town. And uh, it's a beautiful place. Let's look at this next slide. Caesarea Philippi, also known as Paneas, named after the Greek god Pan, has this beautiful stream of snow melt that runs off of Mount Hermon, and this gorgeous stream pours out of the rocks. And in the back, you can see a cave. And that cave was called, at the time of Jesus, the Gates of Hell. It was believed to be uh, the entry point to where the demons lived. And so that was what it was called, the Gates of Hell. Now look at this next slide. This is uh, some of the remaining niches where the idols were placed. And you can see that this was a very, very spiritual place. This was a place that the pagans of that time worshipped. And it was in this context, in the context of religious pluralism, that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Jesus purposely goes to a place where there are competing values, competing uh, deities, and that's where this text takes place today. Let's take a look at our text. Matthew 16, let's begin at verse 30, 13 rather. 
When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which you now know, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That is Jesus' favorite self-reference, Son of Man. It's from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, and it was not easily defined in the time of Jesus. That's why he uses it. He does not want to use a different term that people could load with their own meanings. So he uses the shadowy term, Son of Man. Let's keep going. The disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, in the time of Jesus, it was believed that when the Messiah was to come, the Messiah would be uh, prepared for by a forerunner who would be a resurrected Old Testament prophet. And so people are wondering if Jesus might be that forerunner. So let's keep going. But what about you? He turns to his disciples, he asked. What do you, or who do you, say I am? Simon Peter answered. I'd love to just say Simon Peter blurted out because that's how Peter rolls. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's keep going. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Let's think about that, that name. Uh, uh, well, we're going to think about it in the next slide, actually. Let's go to this next slide. Jesus says, and I tell you that you, he's turning to Simon, you are Peter, Petros, little rock. And on this rock, this Petra, the bigger rock, that what have you just said about me, this bigger rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. Let's keep going. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We think this could refer to the gospel, the preaching of life in Christ. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And many of us believe this is a reference to the gospel message focused on Jesus. Next slide. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, why would he do this? It's because, again, people would invest the term Messiah with all this other political and military connotation. And Jesus isn't ready for that. He wants to keep a ministry that's quiet, and he can imbue it with the meaning he gives to it. So that is our text, amazing, pivotal text in the New Testament. Let's pray together and think about it. Oh Lord, we stand in this long line of people who have confessed you as Lord and Savior. And now we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to lead us as we think about who you are and what you mean to us. In your name we pray, amen. Once upon a time, a pastor was giving the children's message in the church service. On this particular Sunday, he was using squirrels as an object lesson of industry and preparation. He started out by saying to the kids, I'm going to describe something and I want you to raise your hand when you know what it is. The children nodded eagerly. The pastor started, this thing lives in trees and eats nuts. No hands went up. And it's gray and has a long bushy tail. The children were looking at each other, but still no hands were raised. And it jumps from branch to branch and chatters and flips its tail when it's excited. Nothing from the kids. Finally, 
One little boy raises his hand tentatively. The pastor breathes a sigh of relief and calls on him. Well, said the boy, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> the little boy was right on both counts. That was a squirrel. And it's true, when you come to church, we mostly talk about Jesus. Jesus is central to who we are and what we do in this place. Think of it, none of us would be here this morning or online if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for who he is and what he's done in our lives. Jesus is central for the church. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is bedrock. And that's why famed author C.S. Lewis entitled his best-selling Christian book, Mere Christianity. In other words, just Jesus. Jesus was meant to be the focus and always should be. When we get this right, we're on track. And when we miss it, we go off track. We, we get lost. In the 16th century AD, much of the church was lost. They'd lost the focus on Jesus. And they were off track. And so it took church reformers like Martin Luther or John Calvin to, to restore this focus on Jesus that had gotten lost. And they and others came together and gave us what we now call the five Reformation solas. Here they are. Let's take a look at them. These are like core values coming from the Reformation that still guide us today. The first one is sola gratia, only grace. Only grace saves us. Only God's grace. Only the goodness, mercy, and kindness of God. Not our works, not our religiousness, not any of that. Only grace saves. Sola gratia. Now the next one. Sola fides, only faith. Only trusting in God's grace is what saves us from our sins. Next one. Sola scriptura, only scripture is meant to govern and guide the church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. A fourth one. You musicians have heard of this one. Soli Deo Gloria often printed on musical scores at the back or the bottom. Only to God be the glory, not to a human being, but to God. And then the most important one, solus Christus, only Christ. Only Christ is it we worship and serve. Those are the five Reformation solas, still very helpful. But of all of them, solus Christus is the chief focus, the bedrock of the church. Think about it. Confessing our faith in Jesus Christ sets us apart from all other institutions and organizations, from all other religions, from all other social and political movements and parties. Only Christ. It's what distinguishes us from charities and NGOs and volunteer agencies, others who also are trying to do good for people. Only Jesus sets us apart as the church. And when it's Jesus we worship and adore, we are on track, on target. Because it's Jesus at the end that we are focus on. Not a creed, not a theology, not a tradition, not a liturgy, not a political platform, not a king, not a president, not a celebrity, not even our country. And this is why when we are at our healthiest, we churches ought not to have a flag in our sanctuaries. Because this distracts from Christ and his centrality. The earliest Christians confessed Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar is not. And it was an acknowledgement that Jesus was divine. 
that he was supreme, that he alone was sovereign over all the earth. Above all earthly rulers and systems, we confess Jesus, Jesus alone, as our Lord and Savior. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thank you. So then what do we believe about Jesus? What is it exactly we believe? Let's look at those Bible passages we've already been using in our service this morning. Hebrews 1 was our call to worship that surely led us in. Hebrews was written to a first century group of Jewish Christians who worshiped Jesus as Christos, Messiah, and then pressure was on them and they were tempted to fall back from that. And so the letter writer gives them these verses to open the letter with. Let's look at it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Wow. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Wow. Don't you just love that? That is an amazing text focusing us on the supremacy of Jesus. He's more than a prophet. He is God's son, the heir of all things, the one through whom God spoke into being all creation. And he is the one who sustains all creation from the beating of our hearts to the whirling of the galaxies we see with the Webb Space Telescope. Amazing. Jesus. Jesus alone. Next, we read Colossians chapter 1. Shirley read it for us. Here, in this context of religious pluralism and other philosophical systems, the writer writes, the apostle writes, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, you wouldn't see the invisible God if it weren't for Jesus. He's the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, there we go again, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, all his deity, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. Folks, this is the heart of what we believe. These are some of the most powerful passages in the Bible on Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the invisible God made visible. He's the agent of creation. All things were made through him. He's the one who holds all things together. Do you see a common theme here? These texts are singing a song about Jesus. And John, the gospel writer, only continues this in chapter one of his gospel in the great prologue. He says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only son, who is close to the father's heart, he has made him known. We could not see Jesus, or excuse me, we could not see God if it weren't for Jesus. 
I love that interaction in John's gospel chapters later when Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on the last night of his life. And he's just said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, to God, but through me. And then uh, Philip says, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you all this time and still you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's big. That's huge. You see what's happening? You've got Hebrews and Colossians and you have Matthew and John all singing this hymn, this hymn in harmony to Jesus, the Supreme One, the one in whom God is made visible. And right now, so many of us need to be reminded of this, don't we? A lot of folks are disillusioned with the church today. They see hypocrisy. They see clergy sexual misconduct. They see sexual abuse. They see partisan politics, even racism alive and well in the church, and they want nothing to do with us. Can we blame them? Have we not obscured Jesus and made the visible God invisible once again? I don't know about you, but I know many who used to be regular attenders of this church, church members who no longer worship with us. How can we bring them back? Well, I think a renewed focus on Jesus is the way to continue to do ministry. I like what Ann Graham Lotz used to say, the sister of Billy Graham. She said, just give me Jesus. I think that's right. He's our focus. Just give me Jesus. That's what people need. So then what are, are we to do about this Jesus for ourselves and for the church? Two words, draw near, draw near. James, the brother of Jesus says in his letter in the New Testament, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And God does this in Jesus. So we need to draw near. And I'll bet that's why you're watching online this morning. You're not here to fulfill some religious obligation. I think you're here to draw near to Jesus. You need him, you want him. I think that's why all of us are here. We want more of Jesus. So we need to draw near. So how do we do that? A couple suggestions. First, scripture. Scripture is indispensable. Sola scriptura, remember? Scripture shows us a focus on Jesus. We would have no knowledge of Jesus were it not for the Bible. So scripture read meditatively, prayerfully, thoughtfully, scripture points us to Jesus. Here's what I would do if I were you this week. Go back to those chapter ones, Hebrews one, Colossians one, John one. Go back to those and read them and pray them and see if Jesus doesn't become a bit more clear to you. We draw near to Jesus through scripture. Secondly, we draw near through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus becomes compelling to you, when you are drawn to him, when something gives you an aha in Jesus, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes the written word, the Bible, and makes it come alive in our reading. And so we need to open to the Holy Spirit. Have you done that? You can simply say a short prayer as you begin to read your Bible. Holy Spirit, you who inspired this text, make it come alive. The Holy Spirit is the one who stirs in us and draws us to Jesus. And then we do a third thing. We draw near to Jesus through this body, the church. Folks, we, for better and sometimes for worse, enflesh Jesus to others. They would have no knowledge of Jesus if it weren't for us. Someone once said that you and I are sometimes the only Bible that people will read. 
They're going to look at our lives and see if they see Jesus in us. And so thankfully, very often they do when we love one another, when we seek forgiveness, when we seek to live faithfully with Jesus, people pay attention. And so they see and draw near to Jesus through his body, the church. And all of this, folks, is a process. It's a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. You see, Jesus never forced himself on his disciples. When he first called them, he didn't demand their allegiance right away. He didn't coerce their confession from them. No, he took them on a journey. And so it's not in chapter 4, for example, of Matthew's gospel, but in chapter 16 that Jesus says to the disciples, who do you say I am? He, they had to see him. They had to journey with him. They had to be, as one writer said, covered in the dust of their rabbi. And then he became real to them. And so, folks, it takes time. And some of you are still in that journey of getting to know Jesus. And I encourage you to keep going. Keep going because Jesus can draw you to himself. It takes time. And some of us are longing for others we love in our lives to come to Jesus. But it takes time. We have to be patient. We have to trust him. But there does come a time. There does come a time when you may be ready. When you are ready to invite Jesus in. Remember, he won't force his way in. I love what Revelation 3 verse 20 says. Jesus stands at the door, and these words are very famous. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into them and eat with them and they with me. Jesus wants us to open the door of our lives to him. Have we done that? Forty years ago, this summer, I did that for the first time. It was August 1st of 1982, and I uh, had exhausted the menu of fun at my fraternity the year before. And I was empty, angry, and disillusioned. I was cynical. Yet things were coming together that summer that I carried with me on a two-week trip to Hawaii to visit a friend. And as I saw God's creation on the island of Kauai, and as we debated philosophy over cigars, I became convinced that Jesus was real. And I found myself during that two-week period going into my friend's parents' bathroom, locking the door behind me, kneeling on the cool tile floor, and praying to Jesus. I went to Hawaii a spiritual seeker. I came back to California a Christian. 40 years ago today. And friends, I am still praying that prayer to let Jesus in. I need to let him in when life throws me a curve like the loss of our home in a fire. I need more of Jesus. Or when I struggle in whatever ways I struggle, I need him, more of him in and I need to invite him in. Maybe you do as well. So folks, have you prayed that prayer or a prayer similar? I'm really not asking if you've been to church I'm not asking if you read your Bible or pray or try to be a good person. No, I, all those are good things, but they're not central. Have you invited Jesus in? Invited him in? It doesn't have to be complicated. A simple, honest, humble prayer can do something like this. Jesus, I need you. I want more of you. Come into my life and lead me. Make your home in me. Be my friend, my Savior, and my Lord. It's that simple. You could pray that today if you're ready. And if you're not, you could pray it at another point. 
In just a moment, as we conclude our service, uh, there are going to be people here who are trained to pray with you. If you're ready for that, that's awesome. And if you're not, you can pray quietly here or somewhere else. But my encouragement to you is that we pray this prayer and we center our lives on Jesus and know the life and joy and peace he gives to us. One last thought. People ask me sometimes about the future of this church. I've been here 20 years now, and I've seen leaders come and go. I've seen vision statements, mission statements be written. I've seen staffs be restructured. I've seen capital campaigns come and go, and denominational changes and a name change. What do I think about the future of the church, I'm asked? I'm not sure. Like you, I don't have a hotline to heaven. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you the future of this church or any other. But I would remind you of this. Jesus said that he would build his church, capital C. He would build his church, the global church, and the gates of Hades would not overcome it. What's the future of the church? Capital C, it's good. The future of the church is secure. Local congregations, local congregations come and go. I like to remind people, whatever happened to the first church of Corinth, or Galatia, or Ephesus, or Philippi, or Colossae, they're all gone. Churches have a limited lifespan, and God help us, I hope we have an extended lifespan, and I think we can. But the point is, Jesus will build his church, capital C, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So whatever should happen, let us keep our focus on Jesus. Let us draw near to him, for he is the center of our lives, the center of this church and every church. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for how you are at work in our lives. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, to those online right now and to those in this place, and ask that you would draw them ever closer to yourself and do a good work in them. Let them know your joy. Let them know your peace. Let them know your presence. In your name we pray, amen.